If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 8, and we're not going to do the entire passage today on uh, the parable of the sower. We will break that up over a couple of Sundays. Um, Next week, I want to hit that just for a second before we get into the text. Uh, We have a very, very important day of presentation here during AM worship uh, from several our key leaders that have been working for months, and I'm not exaggerating that, been working for months, you could say years, but COVID kind of knocked us out of, out of sync for a little while. But they've been working for a long time on the next stage of our property development here at our church, which we are in desperate need for. Uh, the handouts that tell you everything you need to know, as Clayton mentioned already, will be in the back of the church, uh, ready for you to pick up at your convenience when service is over today. Uh, the next Sunday, we will start at normal time, have music and preaching until 11 and then we'll transition to the presentation. So, so please, please um, don't miss the next two Sundays. I mean, don't miss any Sundays, amen? I mean, don't ever miss a Sunday, but I mean, but especially on a, on a, on a decision of this, uh, of this magnitude, uh, be sure and be here so you can, you can study the, the information this week, come in on the 27th. You can actually uh, hear your leaders kind of put, put skin and bones on what you're reading, and then you'll have an entire week to discuss it with your, with your significant other, your wife, your spouse, your family, whoever, and uh, come back prepared on March the 6th. So today, Luke chapter 8, next, next Sunday, we have worship in our presentation uh, from the building committee and Dow Construction, Joey Ryan. The week after that, March 6th, we will have a special call business meeting and vote on the presentation that we have on the 27th. So be in prayer, be in prayer about, about all that. Now, the last couple of weeks coming into Valentine's Day, we looked at that wonderful story in, um, in Luke chapter 7 with the sinful woman and her incredible moment with Jesus. Uh, in crying over his, over his feet and weeping and, and Jesus forgiving her sins. And now the scene changes back to Christ, traveling and teaching with authority and power are the two words that, that Luke uses all the time to describe uh, Jesus' ministry. So that's where, that's where we're headed. So the first three verses of chapter 8 uh, give us some very important and revolutionary information about some of Christ's followers and disciples and what is that revolutionary information? That some of them were what? Women, exactly. They were women. I mean, here we come from the sinful woman coming to see Jesus, and we transition to chapter 8, and we see that along with the 12, we have women named among the disciples. And I'll, I'll delineate this, not among the apostles, but among the disciples. There's a very key difference there, and we'll talk about that later on. So let, let's look at verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means." So verse 1 is, is characteristic of Luke, and this is what scholars sometimes call a transitional verse or a summary statement. You'll see these from time to time in the book of Luke where it says, and the gospel went forward and Jesus went through the towns and the villages preaching. He just kind of gives you, just kind of compresses like all of his actions kind of into one verse. That's what that is. He doesn't give us an exact location for whatever reason. And the last known location we had so far in the book of Luke is Nain when he healed the widow's son as they came out of the city. But, but we know he's moved on from there. Okay, he's moved on from there. So he is moving through the cities and villages. And Jesus is doing what Jesus came to do. 
He is proclaiming the gospel and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And that is what we are doing today, amen? That's what we do every week here. That's why we're here, is to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and hope that people come from the highways and the byways to come here to hear the gospel and to be saved and then to, to be sent back out to tell the gospel to others and so forth, to multiply, to be the sower of the seed that we will read about today. So, and the 12 were with him and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and so forth. So we see that the 12 were with him. That's very significant. We haven't heard that in a, in, a, in a couple of chapters. So we know that all of the 12 disciples that were previously chosen in chapter 6 are all with him traveling as they're being taught and trained in ministry. Now this is, this is no surprise that these 12 are with him, okay? Because he did not choose, and remember this, Jesus did not choose apostles from the, the established religious order, did he? That's not who he chose them from. He chose basically outcasts. He chose some of the most unlikely men you would ever dream to be his foundational pillars to give his secrets of the kingdom to, to pass on to others. They were not the established leaders of the day. And then we hear this word, and we have three names here of women. Women. Ladies, how you doing today? You good? You love following Jesus? All right, amen, wonderful, I do too. I love the fact that you're here. I'm married to one of y'all. I think y'all are super cool, amen, <laughs> super cool. Don't know what I would do in life without Angie, I'm telling you right now, because I know no other woman on earth could put up with me the way she does, amen, amen, except maybe some of you because you're in the family of God. So, and the 12 are with him. So when the 12 disciples are there and we know that women are with them traveling with Jesus and the apostles and we have three that make it into the text but we also know the Bible says that there were many others that were traveling with them. Now, let me just say this, okay? Because, again, we are at the mercy, we are at the mercy of historians and scholars to be able to help us understand those day and times. Those day and times were quite different than today's day and time, okay? And during that day, it was highly, highly unusual for women to be traveling around with a teaching rabbi. Highly unusual, okay? So right there out of the chute, you see in Jesus' paradigm of ministry, he welcomes women to travel with him and witness his teaching along with the apostles. Now that might not seem like much to us today, but back then that was revolutionary. Revolutionary for that to be that way. There's one statement that Dr. Hendrickson, one of my favorite scholars that I read all the time uh, to prepare, he says this, it is important to observe that while Socrates, Aristotle, Demosthenes, and the rabbis and the men of Qumran community held women in low esteem, Jesus, in harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament, assigns a place of high honor to women. Can you amen that? Amen. So women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So their lives, these women that, that Luke talks about here, these women had been personally touched by Jesus. Personally touched by him. They were sick or possessed. 
Jesus came to their vicinity. They either went to him or were brought to him by someone and through his miraculous power freed them from the bondage of whatever it was that encumbered them in Luke names three of them for us today. The first one is Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. If you've ever heard that name before, raise your hand. Everybody. She is probably one of the most famous women as, as far as being known in the scriptures that is there. And honestly, we don't know a tremendous ab about her really. We know some, most of which we get from what Luke says right here. Her name is believed to have developed due to her hometown of Magdala, located on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and south of Capernaum. She is prominent. Mary is prominent in all four passion accounts. She was one of the women who later watched the crucifixion. She saw where Christ's body was laid. And very early Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday, started out from their homes in order to anoint the body of the Lord. And what I have always found fascinating was that she was the first person that saw who? Christ, after he was raised from the dead, was Mary Magdalene. Now get this, now get this, very important. There is no record in the Bible of the demons being expelled from her other than this reference, none. We don't know when it happened. Uh, we don't have it narrated in the text, but we do know here in Luke that she is described as one who Jesus expelled seven demons from. So this poor woman, this poor woman was possessed not by one, not by two or three or four, but how many? Seven demons. Seven. Now, I don't know about you, or let me just ask this question. How many of you have, have you know for a fact that you've encountered a demon-possessed person? I just want to see if there's anybody here today, okay? One, just a few, okay? I, I don't know that I have. Um, I, I have seen people high on things, uh, I have seen people uh, out of their minds in anger and things of that nature, but I don't know that I have ever seen someone that was completely demon-possessed, and I don't know that we would know unless the demon identified himself being inside the individual as we see in the text. Um, so I would be careful to say that you've seen it unless you know for a fact that you have, but we know that it does happen. Okay, there's no question about that. It happens. Uh, I have heard theologians say that the reason why that you do not see much demon possession in America or in industrialized nations is because Satan has changed his method in our nation. In our nation, he doesn't have to use possession. He uses wealth and materialism and sex is what he uses. And I think that's a good argument, but I still do believe, and do, do not hear me say that I do not believe in demon possession. I absolutely, positively, 100% do. But this poor woman was possessed by seven demons. It is very clear, for whatever reason, that Satan wanted to destroy her. And Jesus wanted to deliver her. And she was delivered from those demons and now are in the scriptures as one of the most faithful followers, one of the most, one of the, one of the, a woman that was one of the most faithful followers of Christ in the Bible, Mary of Magdalene. Number two, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Very, very interesting to see this name. Now, uh, Joanna is a name that we're all familiar with, amen? 
Do we have a Joanna here today? Sitting right over there. Hey, she's a great counselor. If you ever need counseling, you need to call Joanna. She'll help you out. She, she counsels me. She doesn't know it, but she counsels me every time we talk. So it's great. So Joanna, um, but ours is the wife of Ezer, not Chusa. Amen? Okay. And, and honestly, I like Ezer better, don't y'all, than Chusa? I mean, Chusa? How would you like to be the wife of Chusa, Joanna? Yeah, so. So who is this woman and why is her husband not there? Um, that's a question that, that the text begs. We're not told. Uh, most likely, Joanna or someone in her family was converted by Christ's great love, and she felt compelled to travel along with him and his apostles and the other women. And most likely, as the text tells us, that these women actually helped to finance the mission of Christ and the apostles. Joanna would also be there when the angel would greet the women at the tomb in Luke 24, verse 6 and 10. Now, here's probably the most interesting thing about this woman. Her husband, Chusa, actually worked for who? Herod. Now, now we've heard his name, have we not? In the Gospel of Luke, what do we relate his name to? The death of who? John the Baptist, yes. So, so Herod, John the Baptist was preaching against Herod's uh, adultery, and, and basically Herod had him arrested, put him in jail, and then later would have him beheaded. So this is a woman who works for a man who is employed by Herod, and that is very interesting, and you wonder why is this in the text, and you have to believe that perhaps that Luke is trying to give us the vast array of different types of people from all political realms, from different places in authority, people with no authority, people with great authority, people in the government, people outside the government, to show how far and wide and deep the gospel reaches is why he is, she, she is put in the text. Now, the last name of the three is a woman named Susanna. Now, this lady, we know nothing more about her nothing. This is the only mention her in scripture, but she did make it. Amen. She made it in the Bible. So hallelujah. We don't know any more about her. She was a follower of Jesus during this time in her life and traveled with him and the apostles on his preaching mission at this time. Next, the Bible says, and many others who, look at your Bible, provided for them out of their what? Means. Meaning that these ladies had what? Money, exactly. And so, however they got in contact with Jesus, however their life was affected by Jesus, they, they decided to go along with him and the apostles on this mission and supported them and loved them and helped them and paid for them, probably, probably bought food for them and helped them on their, their mission. It's wonderful. Now, I've got to give a shout out to somebody very important to me today. And that important person is no longer on this earth. She is in heaven, and her name was Margie Logan. And, I, and I, as I'm reading this text and as I'm thinking about women that have made an impact on the kingdom of God, uh, that was my grandmother uh, on my mother's side, Margie Logan. My, my grandmother was, was not a, a skilled theologian. She was not a scholar. She was nothing like that. But I'm going to tell you what, you missed church on Sunday, you heard about it for a month. Amen? I mean, that's how she was. She made sure. She made sure we knew who Jesus was. She made sure. That, that we knew church was coming on Sunday. She made sure we knew when the revivals were. She made sure we had our Bible studies. She made sure all that. And every time anybody needed help, my grandmother was always the first person to ante up out of her means because she was a very wealthy woman until the day she died. And she helped me and she helped many others that I've known throughout my life. So God bless you, Mimi. I know that you're in heaven with Jesus right now. Amen? 
Amen. All right, so what does this tell us about Jesus and the gospel, these first three verses, okay? Well, number one, it tells us that Luke clearly delineated between the apostles and the women. The apostles were the 12 men that Christ called to be the foundational leaders of the coming kingdom. They were men as Jesus was. The women were disciples and followers of Jesus and contributed to them financially as they traveled. So the apostles were preaching and teaching and being trained and the women disciples and supporters traveling with them contributed to them, helping them. So theologically speaking in matters of the church, you know I believe this with all my heart. I know this is not popular. I know it is not what, any, what many people don't want to hear today, but I am a firm believer that the, that the public pro- proclamators and the public teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think the Bible clearly says they're supposed to be men, and I just believe the Bible says that. You can amen that now if you'd like. Boy, that was weak, 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 weak. Okay, next we see that women, this is again, women were what? Disciples. That's revolutionary. So women were actually invited to follow, allowed to follow Jesus and learn alongside them and to follow him and to become disciples. Now, not not so by most other religions and philosophies. Most other religions and philosophies, women have been treated horribly during humanity's existence, but not, now hear what I say when I say this, not by true Christianity. True Christianity has been and always will love women, honor women, and protect women. Do you hear what I'm saying? True Christianity, not the aberrations, not the cults, not the craziness, but true Christianity that stays anchored in the text. We love, honor, and protect women. And I've got a woman sitting right there that can amen that because I have treated her that way since the moment I met her, right? Okay, all right, all right, very good. Hallelujah. All right, moving right along. Now, (laughs) come on, honey, help me here now. All right. Now, let's move on to the parable of the sower, okay? So join me in Luke chapter 8 as we move on forward, okay? Now, this is one of my favorite teachings in the Scripture, and it's one of my favorites because I believe it is one of the Spirit's favorites. And I say that because it is in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. All four Gospels and the book of Acts. It is, in my mind, it is Christ's paradigmatic teaching of how the Gospel is sown and the responses from humanity to the Gospel. And within that, the Bible teaches us that we see the fulfillment of, of Isaiah chapter 6 in the verses of his call. He says the gospel is going to go out, some people it's going to harden and blind, and other people it's going to awaken and bring to salvation. And and that is is one of the most harshest realities about the gospel that exists. I, I, I mean, I don't like that. I mean, we want everybody to be saved, do we not? We want everybody to be saved. But the harsh reality is not everybody is going to be saved. Not everybody is going to believe the Bible. Not everybody is going to believe that, that, that Paul's words are true scripture just like Jesus. There are going to be people who hear the Bible, they, they revolt against it, they will not accept it. And that is basically what Jesus says in this parable of the sower. So your citations, Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 8, Mark 4, 
John 12, 37 through 40, and Acts 28, 26 and 27, if you want to look into those, those are the primary scriptures uh, where you see this, this very teaching replicated all throughout the New Testament. It is, it is fascinating, fascinating. All right, so let's begin. Verse 4. Let me get a drink of water here. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the part we're going to do today, and then we're going to do the other part here in a couple weeks. Okay, so we're not going through the entire parable of the sower today. We just don't have time to do that in one shot. So first of all, there's a great crowd that is gathering. So Christ is preaching publicly. And the word gets around that Christ is preaching and this crowd begins to grow. And then Jesus goes into one of his most known forms of teaching. And what is that? A parable. Exactly. And a parable, a parable is a comparison. That's what it is. It's a comparison to help us understand the heavenly reality that Christ is trying to get through. At some point in the parable, there is a moment of, of reversal or a moment of shock meant to grab your attention and make you deeply reflect on what has been said. Probably two of the most known uh, parables is the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of the prodigal son. And in both of those stories, in the Good Samaritan, the last person in the world that you would have thought would have helped that man beat up on the side of the road was who? A Samaritan. And that's the punch. Because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. So they probably, when you're hearing the story, you expect the Samaritan to pick up a rock and finish the dude off, right? But instead, he helps him and nurses him back to health. The same thing with the prodigal son. The idea that this, that this, that this man has left his family and he's in the hog pen, I mean, he deserves what he's getting, right? So when he comes home, do you expect the father to welcome him home and give him the ring and slaughter the fatted calf? No, no, but that's what he does. So that's the reversal, or that's the, 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 the punch, so to speak, that rattles people into interest into listening to Jesus. So think of it like this. I've, I don't remember who taught this, but I've loved this ever since I heard it. A parable is an earthly example of a heavenly reality. I love that. It's an earthly example of a heavenly reality. I did not come up with that. I don't know who did, but I love it. So in this case, in the parable of the sower, Jesus is comparing gospel ministry to what? Agriculture, right? Sowing seed, planting, planting plants, a wheat field, basically, all right? Now, I grew up in the Mississippi Delta, and our house literally, literally was on the edge of a cotton field. I mean, my brother and I grew up riding three-wheelers and digging holes in the cotton field and all that kind of stuff. And just about clockwork, in the spring, you began to hear the roar of the, of the subsoilers out there, the big tractor dragging the big subsoilers out there, breaking up, breaking up all the soil and getting it ready. 
And then once they, then you saw the planters come out there and they plant the field. And then once the, once the fields were planted and they, and they began to germinate and the crops came up, most of the time it was cotton right behind our house. After that, then you started hearing the crop dusters. Right coming in early in the morning, trying to sleep, the crop dusters flying over your head. Then once all that stopped, then a few months later, what'd you hear after that? You heard the roar of the cotton pickers. And the cotton pickers would, would run up and down there and it would turn from white to brown. You see all this white and this straight line down through there. The cotton picker would go and pick the, pick the cotton and, and pick it all up. And then after that, what did you see everywhere now? It used to be that way now. They used to do it in trailers. You'd have lines of trailers everywhere and the kids would run up there and jump in them and play in them. But now all that fun's over. What do they have now? These big module bricks. Have you seen them? Whenever cotton's over now, there's these huge, like, like, like 30 foot long bricks. So, so, so the point is, the point is, in the parable of the sower, is that just about every human being that lives understands that you take a seed and you plant it and that something grows and there's a time to harvest. And so he uses that, this parable of the sower, to get into our hearts and minds to help us understand the four responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These four responses are static. I mean, they don't change. There are four responses, and there are only four responses, and everybody in here at one time or another may have gone through these four responses, or you may be, you may be in, in the middle of one of these four responses right now. I, I don't know, because I'm not you. But Jesus lays this out to help us see and understand that evangelism and discipleship starts in this process just like this. Now, the thing that aggravates me to the nth degree, all y'all's heads popped up. That's so funny when I say that. All What's he finna say, you know? What did we do wrong? You hadn't done anything wrong. I, have, I am 52 years old, and I have lived since, I mean, I was in the church from probably seven years old. My grandmother left when I was probably 21, was gone for probably several years. And in all my time, all my time of being in the church, I don't remember ever hearing a Baptist preacher emphasize this text and apply it to evangelism in the church. How many of you have ever heard it before outside of me? I'm just curious. A handful, maybe a third. Let's be sure we understand something. The key to understanding salvation is right here in this parable. Right here in this parable. If you want to understand where you are in your walk with God, are you saved, are you lost, what is going on? This is one of the most fabulous diagnostic tools in all of Scripture in the parable of the sower. Best one. Let's begin. A sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed. Some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear this morning? Do you have ears to hear this morning? Okay, okay, good. I've, I've got a mouth to speak, so I hope you're ready. So a sower went out to sow his seed. So who is the sower? That's true, okay? I mean, in matters of this parable, who is it? It's Jesus, 
and it's his 12 apostles. Today, it would be us. It would be church. It would be me as the preacher in the pulpit. It would be you if you have a Sunday school class, you're a Sunday school teacher. It would be you as a parent if you have children. Let me just hit this for a second. It is your responsibility to evangelize and disciple your children. Can I get a witness, please? Don't, you don't delegate that to the church. That's what we're trying to eliminate with family discipleship ministry, with Colin Clayton here and all that. We're, we're trying to eliminate the delegation of the responsibility and spiritual nourishment of your children to the church. It is not our job. It is our job to come alongside you and to walk with you and to equip you and to pray with you and to help you. But God gave those kids to you. It's your responsibility to do that, not ours. So parents, Sunday school classes, children, students in your schools, those of you that go to public school, private school, homeschool, it, that, that's your responsibility. You are the sower. Employers, if you're an employer, you need to be sowing seed of the gospel to your employees. If you're an employee, where you go to work, you need to be sowing seed, gospel seed in your field. All of these are fields in which you have been called to sow the gospel. It doesn't just happen inside this what? Building. I mean, it does to a certain degree when we gather here on Sunday and Wednesday, but the purpose of gathering here Sunday and Wednesday is to be equipped to go back out to hit the fields. What percentage of Jesus' ministry was done in the synagogue? Very little. Very little. Where was the majority of his time spent? In the field. With his, with his apostles, giving them what we call in corporate America, OJT. What is that? On-the-job training. Exactly. Okay. So, so it's us. The sower sows his seed. So there's four places the seed is sown. And Jesus will interpret this so it's completely clear what he means. Now I'm going to speed up a little bit because it's 1115, okay? So, as he sowed, some fell along the path. Now this is, this is one of those things that happens when we sow. When we sow, some is going to get, get tossed along the path, the area that is traveled extensively. That's going to happen. And along the path, that's where the people walk and travel regularly. So the ground has been, has been packed down. So it's virtually, it's virtually impenetrable, especially not just, just sowing seed. It can't sink in and it can't, it can't germinate. And because of that, it sits on top of the soil. So then, the, then Luke says it's trampled underfoot. And being trampled means to, means to step down on forcibly, sometimes with destruction in mind. So the seed is sown on the path and immediately is trampled underfoot by those passing on, on, the, on the path, almost like a, like a threshing. A threshing is happening. And they, they walk by, they step on the seed, they crush it, and it makes it suit, even more suitable food for the birds. And the birds come, and what do the birds do? Devour the seed. The principle we see here, no fruit. No yield. Along the path, no yield, no fruit. Okay? No cotton. Amen? No cotton. All right? Some fell on the rock. As it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. I put a cross-reference of Matthew 13 in here. Matthew 13 just gives us a little bit of an expansion of understanding. Matthew 13 says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil... But when the sun rose, they were scorched. So to clarify, this means the seed went into the soil, but just underneath the soil, unseen by the naked eye, there is a 
shelf of what? Come on, Rutherford County. What's down there? Yeah, yeah. By the hundreds of thousands of pieces, big, huge, flat rock that's, that's, that you don't see till you put a shovel in it. Can I get a witness? Right. It's there, okay? It happens. So the seed is sown. It goes into the ground. It germinates and sprouts since it was somewhat shallow, but then... Because the root's not deep and because the, shallow, because the soil's shallow, it withers due to no moisture, no depths of soil. The sun scorches the plant because it couldn't get the nutrients the plant needs. No yield of what? Fruit. You see a pattern here? Some fell among thorns. Again, to the naked eye, it looks fine. But up underneath the soil, there is a thorn bush that is going to germinate right at the same time that the wheat does. So these two plants begin to grow at the same time, and I don't know, but I mean, a thorn bush grows fast. So the thorn bush and the wheat begin to compete for the nutrients and the water that is in close proximity to each of its roots. And so over time, what happens to those two bushes or those two plants? It, they, their, their root systems intertwine. And the thorns, the thorns have, a, have a dominant root system, and so it begins to, to choke the roots on the seed or on the other plant or on the wheat, and it's choked out, and it begins to die. Again, no fruit, what? Yielded. Finally, some fell, last page of the message, amen? Last page. Like a newscaster, last page. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Now, good soil in the Mississippi Delta has a name, and it's called Sandy Loam, and farmers love it. I mean, it is like gold to them, literally. Buckshot's okay. Who knows what buckshot is? That's that stuff that when it gets dry in the summertime, it cracks, you could break your ankle in it. That's buckshot. But they like buckshot because you can make real good rice levies out of it, and it kind of holds water better than sandy loam. So, so buckshot's okay, but, but sandy loam is what they want. They want that sandy loam for planting cotton and soybeans because it tills easy, and it's light brown or dark brown, and it's rich, moist soil. It's soil that a seed can thrive in, therefore it's good soil. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So when you plant seed in good soil and it receives the proper levels of water and nutrients, the seed does what the seed is designed to do. And what is that? Produces a, yes, yield. Produces a crop. Luke says a hundredfold. Other gospels parse it out a little more. Matthew says 160, 30. And we stay kind of like confused. Well, what does he mean by that? I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty easy. I, I think that when you have a field, I mean, if you talk to any farmer, do all fields produce the same yield? No. Some produce, I mean, incredibly well. Others produce not so great. I mean, even on the same field, sometimes they may have a, a, a side that's, that's land leveled here and a side that's not over here, and the water may flow to that side better. I mean, I mean it, just, it just depends on, on the soil. But the fact of the matter is, good soil, the point is, is that good soil produces fruit, produces a constant yield of fruit. If spiritually speaking, 
it multiplies itself. Am I being a faithful Christian? Am I being an effective Christian? Are you multiplying yourself? Are you? Are you becoming more Christ-like in your own walk? And are those, that's, that's why managing your home for ministers is such a big deal. And those that are, that, are, that are the closest to your proximity, that see you all the time, that deal with you on a regular basis, are they, are they being made more and more spiritual healthy? Are, 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 are you affecting their life positively? Are you multiplying yourself? Are you? Are you, are you, are you? Or is it being trampled and eaten by birds? Is it sprouting up and then withering? Or is it being choked out? That's convicting. It's convicting and it's meant to be convicting. If we're coming here wanting to laugh and joke and have a good time all the time, we can do that anywhere else, amen? But y'all are convicted, see? Yeah, y'all are being still and quiet and barely nodding. It's convicting. But when we come here, we want the truth of the gospel. We want to be convicted in our hearts because there is a day that is coming in the not too distant future where either we die or Jesus returns and we are going to be standing before God Almighty and give an account of our life. And if we are going to live a life where we are yielding fruit, we got to make those changes now, if we're not. Amen? And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word of God, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soul, they are those who 